We're in Romans chapter 5 once again this morning. We're looking at the tail end of this section that Paul started back in chapter 3, dealing with the justification of those who are under the wrath of God. From verse 12 through the end of chapter 5, this is one of the key sections of the entire Bible, dealing with how the sin problem came to be and how God acted to fix that sin problem. I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that this is the most important topic of human existence, because these are subjects that affect everyone who has ever lived. Remember, as Paul is giving his gospel presentation, which he started talking about back in chapter 1, he started with man's sin problem, because that's where the gospel starts. You don't have a gospel, you don't have good news, without first understanding the bad news. Mankind is under the wrath of God. He is headed for condemnation. Every single person on earth has been corrupted by sin, is guilty of sin. We saw that throughout those first chapters. None are righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Every single person is guilty of sin. And the greatest sin of all is the rejection of God. Mankind, in his heart, has turned away from God. That's really the sin of which he's guilty. Does he do other things? Other vile, wicked things? Absolutely he does. But they all stem from his rejection of God and from God turning him over to his own desires. He worships the creation, himself mostly, rather than the creator. So that's man's problem, and it's a big one, because it puts him at enmity with God and puts him under the wrath of God. So that's what we saw in chapters 1, 2, and 3, down to verse 20 of that third chapter. But then as we got to verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul has pre presented to us the way out of that problem and how this enmity with God can be fixed. The only way that it can be fixed. It's not through anything that man can do. As we got to the end of that, situ of that section, we came to understand that no one is able to do anything to fix his own situation. No one measures up to the standard of God's righteousness, and therefore everyone is under God's condemnation without any hope of saving themselves. But starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, we saw a glimmer of hope, and that hope comes from God himself. He said back in chapter 3, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now he was talking about righteousness, but not our righteousness. He made it clear earlier that we had no righteousness. But God's righteousness is manifested. That same righteousness that the law and the prophets had pointed towards, had foretold of. And that righteousness is only found how? through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. That's how he started all of this off. Justification is found by faith. All who believe in the work that Christ did on the cross will be justified. And he went on to detail that process, talk about how that comes about. The end of verse 22, he says there's no distinction. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are. Why? Because we're all from that same condition, fallen sinful humanity. He said in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
Anyone who is justified comes from that mass of humanity that he detailed in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because that's who needs justification. Those are the only ones who can be justified. Sinners. Those who fall short of the glory of God. But the only way they can be justified, declared to be righteous, is by the gift that God has provided in his Son. The redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. He went on to talk about that in verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here we had what Christ did. Christ died on the cross. He shed his own blood, satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God which is what brought about justification. For whom? For the, for the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is by faith in Christ, in the work that he has accomplished on our behalf, believing in what he did for us. As we continued on from there, we noted previously that 27 or 28 times, Paul talked about faith, believing, having believed, it's all the same word, noun or verb, but the same word. Justification is by faith, faith alone. We moved through the example of Abraham in chapter 4, talking about how he was saved. By faith, he believed God. God credited his faith to him as righteousness. He did nothing. There was no work at all that he did. It was only in his trusting in what God promised to him. That is essential in understanding all that Paul is talking about here. From verse 21 of chapter 3 down through the end of chapter 5. By faith, believing, that is how a person is justified. It always has been that way. It always will be that way. Now, we've been in chapter 5 for a few weeks. We saw in the beginning verses that having been justified, a person's situation with God has been fixed. Having believed and having been justified, broken through that wall to the other side, we have peace with God. We have hope in the glory that awaits us. We have the love of God poured out within our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And that love is seen in what he did for us, which he talked about in verses 6 through 11. And what he did was die on the cross. Died for whom? The helpless and the ungodly, he said in verse 6. Sinners, he said in verse 8. Enemies, he said in verse 10. He took it upon himself to show his love in dying for the sins of those who are unrighteous, showing his love to those who were unlovable. And that brought us to verse 12 of chapter 5, which is the section that we are currently in. How could this all come about? Mankind had created that chasm through his sin through his rejection of God. Jesus Christ came to provide a solution for that chasm through the shedding of his blood, making a provision for the ungodly that will allow them to escape God's wrath, if they would just believe it, place their faith in that work. That's what we see here in the last part of chapter 5. We looked last time at how he started it off by talking about Adam 
the one who brought the problem into the world. I don't think we can be too hard on Adam. I don't think anyone else would have done any better than what he did. But verse 12 started off by telling us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. What Paul is doing through this section is presenting Adam as a type of Christ. He actually will go on to say that at the end of verse 14, Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So as a type, or the word really means a stamp, something that makes an impression of something else. But as a type, he's going to be comparing what Adam did with what Christ did. He's going to talk about how one man, Adam, affected humanity. And then how one man, Christ, affected humanity. That's going to be his point of comparison here. With any type, there are points of comparison that are relevant between the two items. In this case, men that are being compared. But that doesn't mean that Adam is a perfect representation of Jesus in every way. Only within the way that Paul is, is using by way of comparison here. So what he does... And as we, we see, he starts off with, in verse 12, is talk about how Adam affected the human race. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So, sin and death came into the world through Adam. He wasn't the originator of sin. Satan and the fallen angels had done that first. But th through the sin of Adam, sin came into the world. Through Adam's sin, the rest of humanity is found guilty of sin. And we talked about how there are different ways in which we are guilty of sin. There is personal guilt, where we all sin individually. There is guilt in the sense that we were in Adam physically when he sinned, which is where we get our sin nature. But there is also guilt that we get due to Adam being the head of the human race, representing the rest of mankind when he sinned as the head of the race, when his sin is credited to us from that relationship. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Again, others understand that differently, but that's how I understand what Paul is talking about here. So the sin of Adam, and the fact that all sin, as he said at the end of verse 12, came upon everyone. It's credited to everyone that came after him. Now along with sin comes its consequence of death. He'll go on later to make clear in the next chapter that the wages of sin is death. Death is something that occurs not because God created us to die, but because of sin in the world. He mentions that right there in verse 12. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Just like we saw with the different ways we are guilty of sin, there are different types of death. There is physical death, there is spiritual death, and there's eternal death for those who never experienced salvation. All of those things came about because of Adam's sin and carried through to the rest of the world. Now in verses 13 through 14, Paul started a parenthesis. He said in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who was a type of him who was to come. He diverts from his main point in verse 12. 
and gives us a bit more detail here about death and sin. The point here being that the guilt of the world is evident in the fact that death came into the world from the very beginning. For those who would hold that the law is everything, Paul states that even before the law, there was sin, as evidenced by the fact that there was death in the world. We saw that in Genesis chapter 5. He died, and he died, and he died. The descendants of Adam all died. It says that over and over again in that chapter, even though the law wasn't given for many years later. Sin is not imputed when there is no law, no specific rules to state what a person is guilty of, and yet death still reigned. So the guilt of the world was evident in the existence of death, even though those sinning weren't breaking specific commandments. They were breaking laws that we saw back at the end of chapter 1. Verse 31 of chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, said that they, Gentiles, know the ordinance of God, even though they had never been given the written law. He said then in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 14, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. We talked about this when we were back in chapter 2. The Gentiles didn't have the written law, and this would apply to those between Adam and Moses. And yet, they still sinned. Why? Because they knew right from wrong. There is still a sense that everyone knows the basics of what's right and what's wrong. When Cain killed Abel, that was wrong. And Cain knew that it was wrong. Did Adam and Eve have a sign up in their house saying, Rule number one, you don't kill your brother? Probably not. But regardless, it was still sin. So people still sinned during that time period. Even if it wasn't sins that could be imputed because they were breaking written or explicit laws, the guilt of sin was still there. And that guilt, that tendency, the implications of all that, that all came about from that initial sin that Adam sinned in the garden. And that's the point of comparison. That's what Adam did that had implications for everyone else. Now, Adam was a type of Christ in that sense, in the sense that what he did affected everyone else. So now, we come to verse 15, and we continue on with Paul's parenthetical statement here, giving us the details on his main point that we find in verses 12, and then down in 18 and 19. He's comparing Adam and Christ, the topology that he presents here. So in verse 15, we see him start to talk about this comparison. One man, Adam, one man, Christ. How they affect how they each affect the broader audience of the world, the rest of humanity. Now his first point of the comparison here in verse 15 is of the difference. What is different between them? How are they not alike? So he starts off this verse, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. So he starts off here comparing the acts of the two men, the transgression of Adam and the free gift of Christ. Now, we've talked about the transgression of Adam. That's what started it all off in verse 12, Adam's sin. 
he violated the command of God, transgressed that one command, and it was credited to him, and thus to us, as sin. But what is the free gift? It's what he's been talking about already in the chapter. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, justified by his blood. What is this gift? It's the death of Christ for sins. Back in chapter 3, which we looked at a little earlier, he referred to justification as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we've seen this before. He's talked about that one act of, of Christ. We, that's what he's talking about. That's the one, there's the one act of Adam, his sin in the garden, and the one act of Christ, his death on the cross. Now the first thing that he says is that they are not alike. It might seem strange to point that out, because I think we could all point to many ways in which they aren't alike. But specifically here, what's he getting at? Well, it comes out in the comparison statement that he makes in the rest of the verse. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, so, so this is what we've seen and been talking about, Adam's sin causing death. Death came to all of humanity through the sin of Adam, the many died. Then he continues with how they aren't alike, much more, so there's the comparison phrase, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. So here's the gift, the free gift in comparison to the transgression. And you see the grace aspect of this gift here once again, the grace of God. The word for free gift from before was a different word uh, than he's, what he's using here, but it's all tied into grace. Grace is the key factor in the gift that Paul is talking about. It was God's grace, the act of God, in sending his Son, the one man, Jesus Christ, to offer this gift to redeem sinners. Now he finishes the verse with what? Abound to the many. So the whole phrase here is, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So again, the comparison. The, one, or the act of the one man, Adam, caused the many to die. But much more did God's grace come in in sending his son, the other one man, giving his life. Much more did that grace abound to the many. So there is an increase, or maybe we could say an improvement, that the act of Christ accomplished over and above what the act of Adam accomplished. The free gift from the Son was superior to the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam affected the entire world to bring about condemnation. Now, with God's free gift, he has brought about a fix to the sin problem that has come into the world through Adam. That's what we've been seeing all the way since that first paragraph from chapter 3, verse 21, through verse 26, which we talked about earlier. The way that he brings it up here puts a bookend on the entire justification process that he's been presenting from then until now. He presented sinful humanity in the previous chapters. Then he started in on how sinful humanity can be justified. Now he's talking about that sin coming into the world by Adam's transgression 
causing the guilt of all and bringing death to all. But now we also see how anyone in the world can be justified because of the free gift that God has provided through Jesus Christ on the cross, that gift of his grace. Now the question comes up, who is in view here? I told you last time there are a lot of things in this section that people have struggled over and wrangled over for quite some time, possibly since the very time that Paul wrote this. I mentioned that some commentators think that Peter was referring to this section when he said that Paul wrote things that were hard to understand. But the designation of who is addressed here is another instance of things that people disagree on. It says that by Adam's transgression, the many died. Then it also says that the gift of Jesus Christ abounded to the many. So the question comes up, is that the same group of people or is that a different group of people? Is there one group called the many or two distinct or different groups? The word for many is one that you may have heard before. It's the word poloi or hoi poloi. Sometimes you hear people use the phrase, they're the hoi poloi, meaning a whole group of people or even the masses. That's because this really is a very general word. It just means much, great, many, multitude, large. This word is used 415 times in the New Testament in a wide variety of ways. The idea behind it is really just that it's used for a very non-distinct group. And in this case, here and then again, down in verse 18, we'll see it used this way again. It's really used to signify Instead of the one, it's the masses, or everybody else, the larger group, used in that type of comparison. So the question again, in his two uses here, does he refer to this, does, does he use this to refer to the same group of people, or two distinct groups? From the argument that Paul is making here, I would say that he's talking about the same group, the many and the many, the masses and the masses. This is how Adam's action affected this group, the many, which is really the same as the all from back up in verse 12. And this is how Christ affects this group, the many. Again, I believe he's talking about the same group. When he started talking about Adam, he made the case that his one action brought death and sin to all. Guilt came to all. We talked about Adam representing humanity with his one action. He was the head of the human race. So up in verse 12, sin entered the world through one man, and all sinned. Now in verse 15, as he's going through and explaining this, he's referring to that same act of Adam again, and how it affected the many, the larger group, the same group as the all from verse 12. But now we also have the comparison with Christ, and his one action thrown in here, and it's different than Adam's, how? Well, by the gift of God's grace, he has provided another head, his own son, to come down and bring the gift of salvation, not bringing condemnation, but providing the means of justification. Again, the fix for man's problem of sin. What we saw again back in chapter 3, God provided his son in whom is redemption, whom he publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood for the demonstration of his righteousness so that he would be 
the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We saw all of that back there. That's how Paul started this all off. So the difference is in the quality of the acts of the two men, but its effects are on the same group of people. You notice Paul uses the word abound to the many for Christ's act. That's a word that means to overflow. So the effect that Jesus brings is far superior to that of Adam. And now, as we come to verse 16 and we see more of this, we'll see how it is far superior to what Adam did. So look at verse 16 with me. He starts off with that same comparison in why God's gift is different from Adam's transgression. And he comes back and refers to the one again. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So verse 15, the one and the one, and their effects on the many. Now, back to the one, the gift, which we understand is the same gift that came through the one man, Jesus, and the one who sinned, who is again, Adam. Again, they are not the same. Okay, why? He goes on, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So here is the first half of the comparison again. On one hand, judgment from one resulting in condemnation. One transgression of Adam brought death upon everyone. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. Death reigned even then. That was a result of Adam's sin. So with Adam's sin, you have judgment and condemnation, the effects of which Paul covered in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But then he goes on. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So now the comparison, or what is dissimilar, is in the transgressions. Here we are talking quantity. Still the one man, the one transgression of Adam, and the free gift, which is still the gift, or the grace gift that we were talking about in the last verse, which is the act of the one man on the cross. But with Adam, what did he do? He committed that one sin. And that was it. One sin plunged the entire world into judgment. But Christ, his free gift arose from many transgressions. And again, we have our same word, polloi. Many transgressions, much or greater. Adam sinned one sin, and that was it. That was all that it took. But what happened with that one sin? Well, we talked about it some in our last lesson. Sin spreads. We all know that. It's not like Adam sinned, but none of the rest of us have ever sinned. And we only have the corruption from that one act of Adam on us. No. We do have the guilt and corruption from Adam. But that corruption breeds more corruption in us. His sin opened up the floodgate. We have had we, we have had Adam's sin credited to us. We all have a sin nature that came through our physical lineage from Adam. We all sin personally, acting according to our own sin nature. All of those things are true. All of that brings death and condemnation and the wrath of God upon us. The corruption of sin that came from Adam spread far and wide. It caused what? More and more sins to occur. 
We all sin. Everyone sins. No one is exempt from that. So the point that Paul is making here is that the one sin of Adam isn't the only sin that Jesus had to come and take care of. No, he came and took care of a multitude of sins. You may or may not remember about three years ago, there was a single little bat in a lab over in China somewhere that got loose and started to spread a little virus around. Just a single lab, a single bat. We don't know the exact details, but it started somewhere, right? What happened from there? That virus started to spread, and it spread all over the world. You've probably heard about this. Well, for the last three years, we, what have people been trying to do? Eradicate this virus. Create something to stop it, to kill it, to keep people safe from it. Dealing with not only that one little bat, or the first person who got sick from that bat, but now we're dealing with it on a far greater scale because it's spread all over the place. Now the spread of sin, while similar in concept, is actually even worse than that. Sin spread everywhere, to everyone, ever further and greater than this virus ever has, and caused far greater damage also. Sin has killed everyone. So when God, in His grace, saw fit to send His Son to provide a fix for sins, He wasn't just dealing with one sin the guilt from Adam's sin. He sent him to deal with sin, period. He had to deal with the multitude of sins, the many transgressions, however many trillions and trillions of sins that would be. So here, that's how this free gift abounds, how it overflows. It's a fix that isn't just capable of dealing with one sin, but all the sin able to bring about the justification that is necessary for salvation. You notice at the end of the verse, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. The free gift that God provided in Christ is what makes justification possible. Now we need to be careful with this because we're not talking about universalism. We're not talking about Adam's act that condemned every single person and Christ's act that saves every single person. How do we know that that's not what we're talking about? Because we've already been through chapters 3 and 4. What did we see there? Justification is by what? Faith. 27 times we talked about that. In order for anyone to be justified, they must believe. So Christ's gift is not automatically applied. Paul has already told us that it's applied to those who believe, and only those who believe. But the gift of God's grace has provided mankind with a fix to the sin problem. If he will put his faith and trust in what Christ accomplished on his behalf on the cross. What is that? That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he started this all off with back in chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That is what the one act of Christ accomplished, brought that provision, that good news, to the world, so that whosoever believes it will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ made that possible through his death on the cross. Now, he continues on with this in verse 17, showing the continuation of this gift, of the provision that Christ made for us. He says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So once again, we have the one, Adam. And he's talking about what we saw back up in verse 14, right after the sin of Adam, we saw death reigning. Well, here it is again. Death reigned because of the sin of Adam. That consequence came into the world, and everyone was in its grip. Now he continues with the comparison again, much more. So over and above, this is actually our word for many, or much again. But there's an increase going on here. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So now, we have the opposite side. Death's reign came through Adam, but through the one, Jesus Christ, we have the reign of life. That is what he came to provide. Now again, like we saw in verse 16, we make it clear that this isn't an automatic universal salvation for everyone that ever lived. And we see that in that Paul says here, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. How is it received? How is God's righteousness credited to our account? It's not just automatically put there. It comes through faith. We've seen that over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 22 even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Verse 28 of chapter 3, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter uh, 3, verse 30, Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, justified by faith. Abraham in chapter 4, Abraham believed God, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. That entire chapter, that's all we talked about there. Righteousness being credited to Abraham and his descendants by faith. Down in verse 23 of chapter 4. Now, not for his, Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake only, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So what do we have here when, it, when we come to verse 17 of chapter 5? Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The ones to whom this all applies are the ones who believe it, who accept it, put their faith and trust in it. Those are the ones who receive it. Believers 
will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ because they have believed. Hence the name that we use, believers. They have believed in the provision that was made on the cross. The death of Christ has no effect on a person's life unless they believe it. Just like the promise of God had no effect on Abraham as far as righteousness was concerned until he believed it. It was at the point that he believed that his faith was credited as righteousness, not before then. So that's what we're seeing here. There is no automatic universal application here of Christ's work on the cross. It's only through faith. There is Adam's sin corrupting the world. That came about because he was the head of the race that corrupted everyone automatically. But in order to be in Christ, to take advantage of the gift that he has provided in his role as head of the race, you must believe it. Okay? So that takes us through verse 17, which is the end of the parenthetical section that we've been talking about. Now, we come to verse 18, which is where Paul picks up with his original thought back up from verse 12. Remember, we said that that Paul left off abruptly. He didn't complete his thought there. And most translations have that dash at the end of the verse to indicate that there is that break off, that abrupt break. But now we'll see him actually present both sides this time. Now that he's defined the points of comparison in the typology that he's using with Adam and Christ. So he says in verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Note at the beginning of the verse, there's that same language that he was using back up in verse 12. Verse 12 said, Therefore, just as through one man. Well, here, and again, we'll see it in verse 19. He starts off with that same type of language. So then, as through one transgression. But, he then completes it with the phrase that we would expect to complete the comparison. Even so, through one act of righteousness, which is in the middle of the verse. It's that same type of second phrase that we would have expected back up in verse 12. So again, here's the comparison. And we really see the conclusion of the details that we've been talking about in the last few verses. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's the act of Adam. His sin in the garden, same as what we've seen throughout this section, no different than that. His one transgression resulted in the condemnation of all men. All have been condemned by sin. Now, what's the comparison? Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That one act of righteousness, that's the act of Christ on the cross, the free gift that we are talking about here. God providing redemption, the means for justification. Again, is it automatically applied? No. We've been all through that in the last two chapters. A person is only justified by faith in that one act of Christ. But the provision for it has been made so that those who are from the first group, all men, 
anyone in the world who is under the curse of sin, which is again all men, can be placed into the second group by that one act. And placement into that group comes only by faith. Now through this, some might be wondering, where does election come into all this? Where does God's choice in calling people come into this? Well, Paul hasn't touched on election yet. He hasn't brought it up yet. It is coming. He will bring it up when we get to chapter 8 and again in chapter 9. But at this point in his argument, that issue hasn't been raised. All he's talked about is man is under condemnation. That is what came through Adam's act. God has provided man a way out. That is what comes through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The transition from the first section of the letter, chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, to this second section, 321 through chapter 5, is all about how God has made that possible if a person believes. Now, election is absolutely at work in all of this, because without it, not a single person would ever believe. Without God intervening in the hearts and minds of anyone to believe in the gospel, no one would ever believe it, ever. God provides his Son, provides the means for which salvation is possible for man, gets him out of his sin problem. And man, who runs from God, who wants nothing to do with God, who left on his own, has already rejected God in both a general sense as well as a specific sense. Even with the sacrifice that God provided, mankind will still not believe, will still reject God, even the gospel of God. To the Jews, the gospel is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. They won't believe it unless God calls that person to believe, acts upon that person, draws them to himself to believe. Paul hasn't talked about that aspect of it yet. Paul's comments and arguments so far have all been one-sided. They've all been on the side of man's responsibility to God's gift. But make no mistake, in order for a person to believe, God must be at work in that person's life, even in that aspect of the process. Left on his own, mankind, any one of us, would continue to reject God, just like we were doing prior to when we came to saving faith. So, absolutely, God calls people. God chooses people. We'll talk more about that later on in the book. That does come into this. But remember, all that Paul is presenting here is building blocks, one step at a time, one process at a time. We're unfolding the aspects of salvation one section at a time as we go through this. At this point, this is what is required, how God has provided it. Adam brought the problem. God has provided a solution. Adam brought condemnation. Christ brings justification. And it's justification within the context of how he's talked about justification since he started talking about justification. Justification by faith in the work of Christ on the cross. 
Now we go on to verse 19. We see the same thing again here. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. There we are again. Here again is Adam. Pretty much what he first started off with back up in verse 12. I think his statement here really finishes up what he started there. One man's disobedience. Adam disobeyed God's command in the garden. Don't eat of the tree. He ate of the tree. He was disobedient. He sinned. That sin was passed on to all. Here again, uses the comparison word. The greater, the multitude, the many. But the idea is clear. The one affected the larger group in this way. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Adam, in his act, was disobedient. Christ, in his act, was obedient. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This isn't talking about the way Christ lived his life. There's a whole school of thought around Christ's one act being a reference to him becoming righteous throughout his life by keeping the law perfectly. They call it that active obedience. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's his act on the cross. His act of obedience in paying the price for sins. That's in view here. Did he keep the law perfectly throughout his life? Yes, he did. Was he obedient throughout his life? Yes, he was. But he did not become righteous by doing those things. We've talked before, and we'll see again here in just a moment, that righteousness doesn't come by keeping the law. That was never its intent. Christ didn't become righteous by keeping the law. He was able to keep the law because he was and is righteous. He was always righteous. That's what made his sacrifice effective. What made it able to satisfy the requirements of God's holiness and justice when he died for sins. So, the end of the verse, the many will be made righteous. Again, that many is the reference to that larger group, same as we've talked about already, the all. But it's the provision for righteousness that's in view. Christ's act made no one righteous automatically. It's only through faith that the righteousness of God is credited to anyone. Remember, faith, faith, faith. 27 times we've seen that stressed already. The summary statement, way back in chapter 1, verse 17 of chapter 1, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Nothing has changed when we get to chapter 5, other than now we have a greater understanding of how that works. We're building on that process that he's already established. So in God's plan, righteousness is provided. Adam broke the world, quote-unquote. God has provided a, quote, fix for the world in his Son. Anyone who believes in what he has provided in Christ's death on the cross will be justified, credited with the righteousness of God. Now the last two verses we'll have to cover rather quickly. 
maybe we'll talk a little bit more about them next time before we get into chapter 6. But you see what he says there. Verse 20, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. He brings in the law again. For anyone who was under the Jewish influence, as we've noted in Rome, there must have been a contingency there. This would be something on their minds. What about the law? He noted up in verses 13 and 14, talking about how Adam's sin spreads to the world wasn't in the likeness of the offense of Adam. It happened before there was any law. Sin was in the world. We saw that. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. So there was sin, but no law was there yet. So maybe someone could claim that the law already fixed the problem. Maybe someone could say, well, sure, there was sin, but when, but then God gave us the law, so now we keep the law, so there's no more sin problem. But we've already discussed that. That's not how it worked. Verse 20 of Romans 3, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He then went on to say that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. And he repeated it again down in verse 28 of chapter 3. The law never justified anyone, never fixed anyone's sin problem. What did it do? It revealed their sin. So Paul says here, the transgression would increase. That doesn't mean that there wasn't sin already during that time frame. Just prior to the flood, Genesis tells us, in Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin was there. It was already there. But when the law came in, 613 commands from God, transgressions, or sins that were specifically transgressing the law, increased. Why? Because you tell a man he can't do something, what does he do? He wants to do that thing. Way back in the day, when we had VCRs, some of you might remember those, you'd hear from time to time about kids that would put sandwiches in them, all right, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right in the front loader of the VCR. Now, my kids never did that, and I'll bet most parents never specifically told their three or four-year-olds, don't put a sandwich in the VCR. But you know what would have happened if you did. It would get some kids thinking about it until... That's all they thought about. Until finally, there would be a violation of that law that you set down. They may have done it before anyway, and been punished for it, but if there's a law or a specific rule against it, that would just make them want to do it all the more. So, on the, on the one hand, with the law, they should have known better. But in effect, what happened was, transgressions increased. But in light of what Paul has just been saying, with regard to the provision that came through Christ's gift, what was the effect of that increase? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Back up in verse 16, the free gift, grace gift, or gift of grace, arose from many transgressions. The gift covered the transgressions, covered sins. What happens with more sins? More grace. The word for increased here 
means to abound, but the word abounded means to overflow. I take it that what Paul is saying is, so while sins shot through the roof, so to speak, there was an increase in quantity as well as just visibility. While that occurred, the grace of God overflowed to cover anything that man could come up with. And then he says in verse 21, So that, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the conclusion. Sin reigned in death. But what did the grace of God provide? It provided life in Jesus Christ through justification. Anyone who believes in him, who accepts the gift of salvation that he came to this earth and provided on the cross, anyone who believes in that work, trusts in that, the grace provided in that work is more than enough to cover it. There isn't anyone who has sinned too many times that they can't repent of those sins and trust in the message of the gospel. So here, in verses 12 through 21, Paul has just encompassed those first two sections that we've covered. Sin and condemnation, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And justification and life, in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. One act of Adam brought sin and condemnation to mankind. One act of Christ brought the gift of salvation to mankind. Now next time, we'll start in on this section, uh, next section starting in, in uh, chapter 6, the sanctification of the believer, the what now section of the book, as we look into how we are to live now that we have been justified. <laughs>